Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Blockchain Creative Labs and Bento Box Entertainment Scott Greenberg about how blockchain technology is set to transform TV and the way it's being used in upcoming Dan Harmon adult animation Crapopolis. Marble Media's Mark Bishop and Matt Hornberg on how the company has grown from specialist competition shows about glass blowing, chainsaw carving and sandcastle building. And showrunner Alexi Hawley on the fifth season of ABC police procedural The Rookie and spin-off The Rookie Feds, which launched in the US this week. Fox Corporation established a new venture called Blockchain Creative Labs last year through subsidiaries Fox Entertainment and Bento Box Entertainment with the aim of exploring the potential of Web3 technology for content creators, IP owners and advertising partners. The move came after Fox used its upfront in May to unveil Crapopolis, a new series from Rick and Morty creator Dan Harmon described as the first animated series to be curated entirely on the blockchain, with the series due to debut this fall. Blockchain Creative Labs Chief Executive and Bento Box co-founder and CEO Scott Greenberg spoke to me about the venture's aims, how the blockchain, metaverse and NFTs are set to transform TV and how such technology is being incorporated into Crapopolis. My name is Scott Greenberg. I am the uh, co-founder and CEO of Bento Box Entertainment, which is Fox Entertainment's animation studio, which produces shows from Bob's Burgers to the Great North to Crapopolis uh, to other shows for other platforms. Uh, and I'm also CEO of Fox Entertainment's Blockchain Creative Labs, which is our Web3 technology media company to build the future of content production and distribution. For those that are uninitiated, explain what is Web3 and uh, what is blockchain technology. So I, I believe the definition of Web3 is evolving and the blockchain technology specifically is is a decentralized ledger. But when we talk about Web3 today, uh, Web3 encompasses a few things. It encompasses crypto. We're not really a crypto company. Crypto is a form of currency. It encompasses NFTs and blockchain. And NFT stands for a non-fungible token, which is on the blockchain. It's a digital good. Imagine if you had a digital asset that has a unique identifiable serial number. So even if you had five books or five CDs or DVDs, each one would have its own unique identifier, no differently. And I'll go a little bit more deeper in that in a bit. But it also includes the metaverse. And we talk about the opportunities of, so people talk about the 3D internet. And it's really the future of content distribution, decentralized ledgers and, and digital assets. And there's a lot of different use cases, but I think Web3 kind of captures that area with each execution. And so how does this technology impact uh, Hollywood and, and the entertainment sector? So... In my opinion, and I think what we're thinking about here at Fox, the future of Web3 and the future of technologies and compasses will have a huge impact in the future of entertainment. And it's still the early days. And to use a overused American sports metaphor, if we're in baseball, finally the first inning, we're in batting practice. You know, I think you look back at other prior technology. Right now, we talk about the internet. You talk, oh, I'm going to go open Instagram, go open Spotify. We don't say, I'm going to go turn on the internet, <laughs> go to the World Wide Web go to Spotify and go do it. We just say, I'm going to go listen to music. So, you know, back early days, we used to, um, you know, we had CompuServe or you'd go and plug your phone, plug it in in the modem. So I still think we're in early days. And when we talk about Web3, we talk about NFTs, and we're still talking about the sausage and how the sausage is made. So I think we got to get to a point where it's really about the content. So where I believe the opportunity is, uh, we believe there's a, you know, there's a streaming wars happening now, but there's an opportunity 
what the blockchain and Web3 technology allows is one, in a one ability for creators and fans to have a one-to-one relationship. You really have the opportunity for fans to have ownership. And ownership can mean lots of things. It can be a fan club with more direct access. It can be actual investment directly. It can be actually proprietary ownership of something digital. And it can also mean the ability to engage directly. So I think there's a lot of different uses. I think we'll see the opportunity for fan financing, also more efficiencies and production means. Uh, production financing and how content is distributed. I, I think it will be a new window of distribution um, where I don't think it'll disrupt. We still have broadcast, we'll still have SFOD, we'll still have different windows, but blockchain could be another window because a direct-to-consumer window. It could also replace electronic sell-through and other pay-per-view and also um, a digital version of home video as well because it'll give you portability of an asset versus you know a license on a platform. Also, we look at our future consumer. I mean, you look at the children playing Roblox and playing Minecraft, you know, the nine to 14 year olds are living and breathing with their friends in a virtual space. They socialize there, they consume content there, they transact there. So it's only nature they're going to expect as they grow up and evolve that their media experience will evolve with them. So I believe uh, we're going to see a lot of those attributes in those closed worlds in our world. So tell us about some of the things that you're doing at Fox, Bento Box and and, and Blockchain Creative Labs. Sure. So at uh, Blockchain Creative Labs for Fox, the name is specific. We chose the name Blockchain Creative Labs because we leveraging blockchain technology, decentralized ledgers and working with NFTs and all the technology that comes around um, that technology. Creative as at our core, we're a creative company. Uh, at Bento Box, we're creator-driven everything we do. Fox historically has been a creator-focused company and really a pioneer, you know, and everything is done for creators. And labs, that it really encompasses Fox as an entrepreneur. I mean, um, the Murdochs are true pioneers in the entertainment business, really driving forward. And uh, this is one of those unique opportunities where Lachlan Murdochs have the vision of where we're going and to build a team to really go after this. So what we're doing, we have a few executions. Right now, we're working on Crapopolis, which is our major animated show. Produced at Bento Box, which is going to premiere in Fox in 2023. We announced at Comic-Con that there'll be a sneak peek over Thanksgiving weekend. Here in the United States, there's a big weekend for Fox where you're going to have the World Cup. You're going to have uh, you, you know NFL football. You're going to have Big Ten Michigan-Ohio State. And then a football weekend, and then a premiere of Crapopolis. So around that, we've now launched uh, an NFT uh, called. Um, if you go to Crapopolis.com, the K Crapopolis NFT of ten thousand four hundred twenty unique chickens. Because in ancient Greece, before there was money, they used chickens, olives, and sandals for money. So we thought it would be kind of funny with Dan and the creative team to have chickens represent the first thing. And so each chicken will have unique attributes that all are in the show and we premiere them at comic-con and our if you look at our twitter over twenty-five thousand followers in a week which is amazing our discord is growing and our demand and what what this is going to be is it's it's an early fan club so if you own one you'll have a gated tokenized gated access to an exclusive screening room we invested in a company called alluvio so if you're if you hold a token an nft you'll have access to see art in the production you might see access to early cuts of the episodes and you might see an episode early and you might have access to the creator. So really, an early place for early adopters, there's going to be a token-gated merchandise store where you can buy exclusive merchandise and other opportunities and um, you know gifts that you show really social flex if you're there early. So we're very excited about that. And then as this progresses, we'll drop new things in the future, really as a show releases, a tie to the show. So for us, it's really an extension. The TV show is a lean-back experience. This is be an extension of the world and being part of it having the opportunity to earn in it. There'll be a point we're going to sell a token, a limited number to have your likeness as a background character of the show. And uh, it really grows. This grows and you know, we strongly believe we're going to be multiple seasons of show and grow. 
So those NFTs will ultimately move into a virtual world and really expand this out. And what's amazing, since this is Fox Entertainment as a studio, we own the show globally. You know, we'll be taking the show to MIP. We're already talking to international partners. Uh, the NFT is available globally. So even as we do identify, well, there's no better place to launch a TV show than on Fox. Sunday night animation domination is the home that launched The Simpsons, Family Guy, King of the Hill, Bob's Burgers. We'll be launching Crapopolis and really be able to go to our global partners and say, look at us. And you'll, you'll say, we have fans around the world who can buy in early. So really a global launch and a global appeal, which we're very excited about. And I can talk about, I mean, we have a ton of great stuff. That's our big thing. Then we're the global licensee for the WWE and we're really building unique experiences around NFTs so that super sticky fan base and educating them what it means on a digital good. And we're leveraging Friday Night Smackdown on Fox with that experience. And we're launching uh, what we call Flips, which is like a video highlight, but then we'll also be selling packages that have in real life experiences, you know, NFT, you might get a meet and greet with it, tickets to an event, tours of things. So really kind of experiencing that package and really creating an alignment. That's global too. And then for, you know, we're working very closely with the Mass Singer team. We have a very exciting projects we're going to announce soon for season eight and season nine coming out this fall. And we're talking with the Gordon Ramsay team, which we, you know, Studio Ramsey's um, Rob Wade, the head of uh, Alternative at Fox and Gordon's team. A lot of great opportunities with them. And with Fox Sports, we worked with the USFL, which is a new football league, which we, spring football, which Fox owns, you know, launching tokens for players and really players as creators and the players get a majority piece of that revenue. So building them. So really, we're trying to play in the ecosystem of what is the content and what is the experience. So we're very excited. And ultimately for us, you know, if I could, we have this conversation two years from now, we want to have a new way of content distribution. So there'll be a show on Fox that'll be owned by the creator, the fan, us, and maybe a brand in a global, in a global opportunity. And that's really where we want to go and shows being produced in the blockchain more efficient, you know, participation is going out to the early adopters and really having an expansive experience. It's very interesting what you're saying, particularly in the context, I guess, of, of uh, US studios in particular, taking more ownership, it seems, of the programs that they produce. So um, obviously artists, yeah, one of the great things about NFTs is that it gives artists an opportunity to have more ownership of things. But rights discussions are already complicated enough as as they are. How do NFTs and, 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 and blockchain kind of, you know, change the conversation that you're having around uh, around rights management? Uh, I believe Web3 technology will make rights management much more clear, much more creator-friendly and user-friendly and studio-friendly because everything is open and verifiable on a database. That's one of the fundamental technological aspects of a blockchain. It's immutable, right? Everything's open. So there's nowhere to hide. So every right will be explicit. You know, if company A has distribution rights in the UK, it's on the blockchain. If company Y has uh, merch rights for plush, it's in the blockchain. You know, if uh, actor or creator has certain participations in the blockchain. So everything is there, everybody knows, and every transaction goes through it will be distributed. So it should make better accounting and truly creates an opportunity. The, the world is changing. Uh, this is really an opportunity for fans to help support creators and creators have more ownership and control and studios taking a global position of helping empower creators and empower fans and take it back. And, you know, another interesting, and so I think that's a very exciting opportunity and it's, it's, it's just an evolution. I think it's good for our business. It's good for the creator business. We're coming out of a world where people are worried the streamers are taking every away from the creators or they're no longer is backend exists. I think this is a model where really there is a backend future for creators and really fans can support them. So we actually think this is a very viable product for everybody. Uh, and we're very excited about that. NFTs and the metaverse are connected, but they're, they're different things. 
what is the metaverse to you and, and, and what are you doing in that space? Again, what's the potential for Hollywood? So when I talk about the metaverse and talk about Web3, you know, I try to read as much as I can and listen to experts. You know, I, I've been reading Matthew Ball a lot. I think he's one of the forward thinkers in this space. And again, like I said before, I think I look at our future audience playing Roblox. To me, that's the metaverse. You know, Matthew Ball describes the metaverse as the internet in 3D. It's really just you go to a website and there's a 3D access. So he also started talking about, well, NFTs. I've heard NFTs spoken about as the building blocks for the Legos of the metaverse. I've also heard people say, well, there's a metaverse and then there's NFTs they're not always the same. So I still think it's early, but I do think the notion of going to opening a browser or clicking on data and going to a, a virtual, virtual world. We work in this in bento box, having 3D assets, 3D places. So having a place to experience, and I don't think there's one metaverse, I think there's multiple, you know, it's really about where the audience is. And so I think, you you know, we're going to have multiple for show. There might be a Fox home. There's a lot of these great companies out there doing land, but I, I think the metaverse is really a 3D internet and a way to engage with brands and things in a three-dimensional world, maybe with headsets and AR, VR, maybe just on your phone or on your tablet, however you look at stuff. But I do think it's a really another way to engage with the fans and extend the experience and then have the opportunity to transact and engage. And um, so I think in place of screen things and play in a world. So there's a lot of uses. I think, again, for Crapopolis, I believe we'll have a virtual a metaverse around that. Maybe you can go into the world of Crapopolis. Maybe your NFTs can be then used like in game assets. You know, you look at companies like Unity inside of, you know, their games and, you know, you look inside where you can buy skin inside that game, but it's inside those worlds. People talk about there should be, you know, uniformity. You know, there's, there's been companies communities build between these companies of saying, I should have portability of my asset around. And so I, I think you see a lot of interesting things. So maybe take your Crapopolis character in a different game and play it, you know, or have your, your avatar. I think there's so many different uses, but I think at its core, we're moving to a three-dimensional world where you can still entertain and view content and engage with your fans that way. And that to me is the metaverse. And then I think with NFTs, the digital assets can live in there and also be separate. And then your, your media can live as an NFT and you can maybe experience your, your media inside the metaverse as well. So there's a lot of uses. I worry the, the phrase is thrown out a lot. A lot is a buzzword now. And there's a lot of marketing uses. And that's interesting to some degree. But what we're looking is really down the road. What's a real practical use, which is value for the consumer and value for the creator? It's a real experience, not just, oh, let's check the box. We have our metaverse experience or NFT experience. What's real value in creating a real product forward? And that's what we're focused on and more excited about. So I also think there's a huge ad tech opportunity here. I think for advertisers, again, because one of the beautiful things about Web3 from a consumer, you have your wallet and you have a private key that you engage in the world. Unlike today, we've all made the deal with the... Web2 company saying, I'll take your content for free, but you know who I am, you know my data, and you're going to go resell it for an ad. And we all seen the consequences, good and bad, of our data being sold. And Web3 is, well, I can transact, but you just know that I'm a number. So you don't know who I am or I am, but you know, okay, Scott went to this website, went to that website. So this person, then an advertiser would say, well, you know, Mr. 12-digit number, if you give me your zip code, I'll give you something else. So I own my data. I can then sell my data. So instead of, you know, a world with a CPM is now shared between, yeah, you know, the platform and the user. I think that's compelling. I get to choose what my data is used and there's a value for that. And I think that's a very compelling difference from web two to web three. And that from a media standpoint, you know, and then an advertiser, you can choose to consume and pay, or you can consume to, you know, just a trade. Okay. I'll take that. Here's my data, pay for that good content for free. Uh, you know, I think that 30% rate that typically gets taken by third-party companies can then be redistributed. I think that's really compelling. And I think that's good for creators. It's good for the consumer. It's good for the advertiser. And I think it's good for the business overall. Just how transform 
formative do you think this technology is going to be for the industry and um you know for for companies that are not yet engaging in it or, or thinking about it you know how, how seriously do you think that they need to take it and what should they be doing i believe web three, the web three technology and the different elements within it we talk about the metaverse blockchain nfts fungible tokens, crypto, is going to have a major transformative effect on the media business. It's going to be a year from now, be five years from now, I'm not sure. Uh, there's a lot of innovative startup companies driving forward applications and use cases that I think when proven, the more traditional companies will follow on and get the benefit of. There'll be some early adopters. I mean, we're unique at Fox, an established company, but with an entrepreneurial spirit, trying to forge our way as a startup to find this way. So we're trying to be specific with our needs. We talk about how Fox taught America to text over 30 years ago on American Idol. You know, in more in, So we're trying to say, how do we leverage our reach, our properties to teach the world how to own a digital good the value and do it. So I think there'll be some companies who are going to innovate and find it and there'll be companies who will then follow on for other innovators. But uh, again, like I said, I think our consumer base in the next 10 years will be the kids who play Roblox on Minecraft and live in virtual worlds. So it's inevitable. Uh, what it look, you know, we all thought CompuServe and AOL was the future. Um, what this looks like, I'm not sure. I think we all have to look, keep our eyes on it and evolve and when the right product comes along. But ultimately, this is going to be a transformative moment which has great value for the consumer, the creator, the studio, and the brands. Over the past four years, Toronto-based Marble Media has landed a string of high-profile commissions for competition series for the likes of Netflix, Bell Media and CBC, set in the worlds of niche activities such as glassblowing, chainsaw carving, sandcastle building and cocktail making. On the scripted side, the firm has recently produced Overlord and the Underwoods and the interconnected sitcoms The Parker Andersons and Amelia Parker and is bringing several other projects to market shortly. Co-founders, co-chief executives and executive producers Mark Bishop and Matt Hornberg spoke to Jordan Pinto about the impact of the global streamers setting up shop in Canada, taking Canadian formats global and their strategy for building out both the scripted and unscripted sides of the business. Five years ago, if someone had said to you that in 2022, Marble Media would be known primarily, and I'm not, not solely, but primarily um, as a kind of competition series specialist with a focus on niche activities like uh, glass blowing, chainsaw carving, sandcastle building, and cocktail making, uh, would you would you have believed them? W would that be the trajectory that you thought you were on five years ago? Uh, it's a great question, uh, Jordan. I think, uh, I think there's elements of that that wouldn't be that surprising. Uh, I think we've always been very... Uh, uh, very competent uh, in the competition space uh, and in the co-viewing cool broad uh, entertainment space. So, you know, those elements remain true. I, I don't think any of us, ourselves included, um, could have expected that something as niche as glass blowing, chainsaw carving, uh, sand carving, uh, cocktail making, as you say, um, could have found such a broad audience. Now, the cocktail making hasn't launched yet, so we'll see if it finds the broad audience that these other projects have. But uh, you know, I think that's what's been really uh, exciting and exceptional, and it's certainly helped catapult the unscripted uh, portion of our business uh, into uh, into a different category. Um, and it's uh, we're really proud of it. There's a, definitely a, a marble signature to those shows um, that have allowed for such a broad audience and something that feels very elevated uh, through uh, the characters, uh, through the cinematic uh, way of shooting it, and just the authenticity. I, I think of the location and, and again of 
the casting as well. I think, I mean, absolutely, as Matt said, I mean, I think part of, if you look back at the roots of our company, you know, in terms of, of co-viewing four-quadrant content, and you take a show like Splatalot, for example, which we produced 12 years ago, uh, which again was a kid show, but also had a very strong family co-viewing component and really a big ambitious reality competition series that spawned you know, multi-territories you know, coming on board that re really became an international hit and really showed as a company what we were capable of doing. I mean, we, we invested in a 50-acre production ranch, which we have north of Toronto, which we still have as part of the company to be able to, to do these type of shows uh, and really kind of showed the ambition um, you know, and the scale of the projects that, that our company could was capable of doing. So I think it was a natural, you know, in terms of having that foundation and being able to take on really big, ambitious ideas. Uh, and I think Blown Away, for example, is a real testament to obviously the strength of the company and what we're able to do and the strength of the partnership with a, with a partner like Netflix, who could really uh, see the vision um, that our team had for for executing that and could embrace uh, something that again if you had had you know maybe 10 years ago taken that to a traditional broadcaster they would have looked at you like you had three heads in terms of you know where does this fit on a linear network um, but but with a a, a a partner like Netflix they really saw that they embraced that they really uh, understood that something like that could really connect with audiences and and they help market and promote it and make sure that that it, it could find that what some may consider niche uh, could really go to a mass audience uh, you know and have such global appeal it's interesting Jordan too you mentioned five years ago and I think that was it was just uh, just earlier than even five years ago that was a pivotal point in our company where we certainly saw the decline in original content being commissioned out of Canada uh, we also saw uh, a trend in which some broadcasters wanted themselves also to be the studio and, and effectively um, uh, make Canadian producers be more producer of record. And that just doesn't fit our business model. We uh, have always owned and controlled, uh, developed all original ideas. Um, and so we needed to look elsewhere for commissioning uh, relationships. And we really pivoted our development slate to focus in uh, primarily in the US and the UK a little bit as well. And I think that's really, that's where the end result has happened now. 80% of our original commission work comes out of the US. US. Uh, we obviously have uh, Canadian partners we're very proud to be developing and producing for, but uh, we're really looking uh, at, uh, at the global scale for development um, uh, and selling these original ideas. Uh, just as a, a side note on um, Drink Masters, the, uh, the cocktail making show, do, uh, are either of you um, experts at rustling up cocktails or any, any, spe <laughs> any specialties? <laughs> I make a mean old fashioned <laughs> and I will warn you once you watch one episode you will I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how many cocktails you make you will make cocktails because it is uh, it's awe-inspiring and even even if you're not you will want to uh, buy some nice stemware uh, as I did after watching the show and want to make make cocktails so just be prepared <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I also noticed relatively recently it was announced that um, Race Against the Tide, the format has been sold internationally as well. Um, just when I look at these, some of these um, unscripted formats that you have on, on the go at the moment, um, or these, these unscripted series, they do seem like they are ready-made formats in a lot of cases. Um, do you see yourselves 
I don't know, maybe five or 10 years ago, I don't know whether you guys saw yourselves as a kind of unscripted um, format uh, generator as a company. Do you see yourselves slightly differently in 2022 maybe than you did in the past? And is the goal to to build out a, a robust format business too? Yeah, excellent question. I think uh, to Mark's earlier point, I think Splatalot was a turning point for our company where uh, we realized that we were sitting on you know an original piece of IP that we created that felt familiar, but different and unique in its own way. And that show was conceived with the idea of finding multiple format partners. Um, and uh, and so with that success, that international success and the learnings that we had from that, that really informed uh, a lot of the development slate as we thought about shows, um, not just about how do we make a show a hit uh, in our own market, but what are the elements that make it unique that will um, make it translate into other markets? And so, yeah, I mean, it's still early days, but uh, definitely over the past um, year, Distribution 360, our sales arm has had a tremendous amount of interest uh, and uh, created a number of deals uh, in the optioning space. And now we're uh, soon to be announcing some of the actual sales and productions that are going to move forward with some of these formats. You know, but certainly couldn't do it without CBC as well. I mean, they have just been an outstanding partner and really, you know, to their credit, they are actively developing uh, with producers and commissioning shows uh, that are originally formats. Um, and, uh, you know, very, very little of that is happening kind of in the Canadian space. Obviously, we see all those American and European franchises that come into Canada um, that are being made by some of our competitors and, and doing very, very well in the ratings. But, um, you know, to uh, CBC's credit, they see the value of uh, investing in uh, Canadian uh, projects that can be born here and then ultimately be uh, shared and exported to the world in other localized formats. I, I think C- you know, Canada is just about to have a turning point. Uh, we hope, anyway, in this international marketplace. We're hoping our company can be part of uh, of that uh, sort of page turn and next chapter. Because for so many years, we've seen uh, obviously American, UK, Dutch, uh, Scandinavian, Israeli formats do really well. There's no reason why Canada, you know, given its market size, given our sense commercial sensibility, that we shouldn't be the next country to create some hit formats globally. I think to Matt's point what we've seen, and I'll say, especially on the D360 side, that, um, you know, that there's a real interest uh, internationally in Canadian formats, um, you know, and being able to work directly with our sales team, they, they really are involved, um, you know, again, and really working with our development team to make sure, to Matt's point, that, that we're really thinking about those format points, really understanding how it can work. And even when we make sales internationally, looking at do we do tape sales versus format sales and working with local producers and local markets? But the number one question that gets asked every single time, because I've been in those meetings before with international buyers, is how did it do in your domestic territory? Right? It has to start as a as a homegrown hit. And if you look at you know any of those international formats that come into Canada and the US and, and from all those countries that Matt just named, uh, that that is the the thing. The the domestic broadcaster in the local market has to really get behind it, work with the producer and promote it and make sure it's a great show that can find an audience. And I think that's where it's been challenging for Canadian producers uh, historically because there's been such an appetite to adapt other people's formats and and not as much appetite for risk because uh, it's risky creating original formats for sure. There's no format Bible that comes with the ratings and all the other information. You're, you're building it from scratch. 
but I think what we have seen, to Matt's point, with the CBC as a great partner, um, you know, on a number of, of our current shows, uh, is that right of, of taking that risk and working with independent producers to really craft something, uh, and then to have shows that that rate really well. I mean, you look at Race Against the Tide, for example, uh, which has done phenomenal in the ratings, especially this season. Uh, you know, cracking the top thirty. You know, at one point this summer was the number one show on CBC. Like that's again because it's a great show, but because we have a partner that actually actively promotes it. And that's what you need to have a homegrown hit so that when you go and have those conversations in the international market and talk talk to those uh, buyers, they can look back and see and they can understand and see the, the value of the show and the real opportunity it could be to adapt it locally. Talk a bit about the scripted business as well. I, I know uh, recently you announced a partnership with um, Stargate showrunner Robert C. Cooper and his production company uh, Miso Entertainment, um, and you're developing a live-action sci-fi series called Generation Mars. That was that's just an example of one project. I know you've also made hires in LA as you look, look to build out the scripted business too. Maybe you could give us a, an update on, on where things sit today uh, in, on that side of the uh, of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think one thing that um, you know has been great during the the pandemic because I think we should be positive about some of the nice things that have come out of the pandemic is that it's really given us an opportunity to double down on development, uh, you know, and really work on uh, developing, especially on the scripted content side, uh, developing, uh, you know, optioning great IP, as you mentioned, with with Generation Mars. We have, you know, a number of, of, of books and other uh, IP, um, graphic novels and others. I think we, we have 10 different pieces of IP under option right now. Um, and that's really for us on the scripted side, everything from kids content right up to teen, tween, family co-viewing and primetime scripted. Um, and, you know, again, what we did during the uh, pandemic is we, we had hired somebody based in, in L.A., A.J. Troth, who's our VP of Kids, who's just dynamite and, um, you know, came out of the Disney, was a Disney star many, many years ago. Uh, came up through the Disney ranks uh, and and a great producer, and he's really shepherded a number of different projects, uh, including a great new scripted uh, project that uh, has recently been greenlit by two different streamers so that we'll be announcing later this fall. Um, and so that's that's really exciting. Uh, as well, during the, the pandemic, we actually produced 40 episodes of scripted uh, co-viewing content. Uh, so Parker Anderson's Amelia Parker, uh, as well as Overlord in the Underwoods, um, and with Carrie Pop Shaughnessy, who is our VP of scripted, and as well as our exec producer overseeing all of that production. Uh, Overlord in the Underwoods, um, as, as one example, I mean, it's been a great global hit, just launched on Hulu in the U.S. last month, um, you know, and uh, we'll have more sales to, to announce on that as well, too. So it's been great to kind of feel that, that momentum. Uh, and then, as you say, really building out our slate. So, you know, some of the titles we have announced, we also announced a first look deal with Ira Levy, uh, Spike and Sadie Media, uh, who's again well known in the Canadian marketplace. And after leaving Breakthrough and setting up his own shingle, really has worked over the past year and a half before joining and uh, working with us on building out a really robust, uh, diverse scripted slate of, of projects, uh, a number of which we're developing right now. Uh, you know, and we've got three primetime scripted series in development with Canadian networks uh, that we're just starting to take out to the international marketplace right now. Everything from, you know, workplace comedies to procedurals to, you know, primetime drama. I'll say all will have that signature marble um, value to it, right, of, of you know, of, of optimism and a bit of blue sky and, you know, re really looking at that, you know, positivity, um, you know, and doing it in a, in a whole number of different ways. Some still tackling really interesting, tough issues, very current issues, very topical, um, you know, but but really doing it uh, in a very smart, uh, sophisticated way. So uh, there will be a number of announcements over the coming months, um, you know, of, 
of, of that slate. And it's really a combination, like I said, both of AJ as our VP of Kids in, in LA, leading uh, the development, basically everything up to family content. Carrie Popshaughnessy and our team in, in, in Toronto, we're leading the, I'll say, you know, everything from YA um, up to, to primetime scripted, um, you know, content from there. And, uh, you know, we have, we have a really robust slate. We really look at the growth of the company in the next couple of years. And I mean, this is certainly the area that I think is really going to put our company into another stratosphere. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it takes time. It takes time to build your slate. Uh, it's not, you can't be as reactive as an unscripted um, uh, genre can, of course. Um, but the timing is is just, it's spot on. Um, and we're just taking a lot of projects out over the next six months. So it's the culmination of, you know, three to five years of deep, deep development. Um, so we're really proud of the scripted slate. And uh, I think that timing is going to really nicely align as well with uh, obviously the Canadian, the new Canadian buyers uh, on the streaming side that are going to be here and um, and doubling down over the next couple of years. So, yeah, we, we see it as a, as a dynamic and exciting time. And, and we certainly feel scripted is going to help um, even just sort of like for our EBITDA in, a, in an exceptionally strong way. Yeah, that's maybe something I, I didn't appreciate is, is how much stuff is going. Obviously, scripted takes longer to get, you know, to get over the line and get to green light and get to the announcement stage than, than unscripted. But I think maybe I, something I didn't realize and maybe other people will start to realize soon is how it's it's more evenly weighted between scripted and unscripted. I, I didn't realize, for example, that you had three three primetime series in development at uh, Canadian networks, for example, like that's really interesting. Yeah, and yeah. it is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I think that's the thing to your point. And that, that, uh, I think the uh, what people are aware of, of what we're achieving just through announcements over the next six months to a year, it's, uh, you know, when we have this meeting with you a year from now and you're looking back, um, it's, it's going to feel like a, a much, uh, just a much more even mature company, even though we already see ourselves as a global leader in a lot of ways. I was just going to add to just to reinforce again what we were talking about earlier, <laughs> but I think we can say it on the record in terms of I mean we do know that the the streamers who are setting up in Canada. And know there's a, a, a uniform message coming across the board that primetime scripted content is a key priority. Um, each of them have said it publicly. They said it earlier this week at Content Canada here in Toronto. Uh, and there's a real desire uh, to be creating premium uh, scripted content uh, here in, in Canada. So again, to Matt's point, we feel very well positioned. Uh, some can be combination of a, a global streamer and a Canadian broadcaster, so it doesn't have to be exclusive. Um, and you know, and then we do it. I see a real trend right now of streamers working together. Um, like I hinted at, we do have a scripted project that has been greenlit from two different streamers in, in different territories that you would think are very fierce competitors, but are working together. So we think there will be more of that, that type of model, which again is not new. That's the old model as Canadian producers we've been doing for a long time of piecing together financing from different countries and different partners working together, but we're seeing it with the streamers. But there's definitely a focus um, that the global streamers who were setting up shop in Canada um, have identified of, of uh, being interested in producing uh, primetime scripted content. So we're we're well positioned for that. Um, you recently hit uh, a huge milestone, actually, your your 20-year anniversary. So congratulations on that. Um, does it feel surreal to think that you're entering your third third decade as a as this or you know as this production company, Marble Media? <laughs> we have more gray hair now than we used to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, it's exciting. I mean, what's great is like Matt and I, when, when we started the company, again, 21 years ago, you know, we always had this, this desire to tell uh, stories that that we felt were really important, that would connect with audiences and that we were passionate about, uh, and also doing it in a really innovative way uh, and always finding different ways to connect with audiences. And when you look back at the history of the company, I mean, our very first project in 2001 was a website and a, ser a series in American Sign Language for deaf children. Um, but it was really a website first and then a TV series, which Again, in 2001, people thought we were crazy, but that's the DNA of the company, right? Of really thinking differently and, and you know, telling great stories um, in different ways, right? And so it's, you know, that innovation in the company continues, whether it's through our CAPCO certified YouTube channel, Marvel Kids, whether it's working directly with the streamers globally and finding different ways, uh, to Matt's point, to really work directly with American buyers and then bring things back to Canada to still tell great Canadian stories with Canadian talent and share them with the world and you know, with with different partners, um, you know that that's it, that's exciting, right? And and I think we're we're energized uh, now, uh, you know, even more than ever, right? In terms of knowing the value of the great content that we're creating in Canada, knowing that our shows are global hits, you know, in 120 plus countries around the world, and that Canadian content is something that is of real value in the international marketplace. So we're incredibly well positioned, and and we've been able to you know grow on on a great trajectory of expanding, obviously from our, our roots in the first you know five to ten years were really kids and family focus and really expanding to, to prime time and continue on that growth uh, plan right and obviously with having people in LA somebody in London um you know our team here in, in, in Canada continuing to grow uh in each of our different sales and and activities being able, able to grow we're really excited about the future when you think back on the early days um do you remember everything crystal clear or is everything a bit of a blur where you kind of vaguely remember you know there was this meeting and that meeting or do you remember everything like very very <laughs> Very clearly and vividly. I think we remember things pretty clearly. I mean, we're both pretty nostalgic. Um, so it is it is fun thinking back to the early days, as you're saying. Um, in 2001, when we started the company, and Mark and I were like starting in his dining room, just he and I. And so there's there's a lot of memories and a lot of ex shared experiences that have happened between Mark and I um, over all of these years. I mean, we're best friends, and we were um, best men at each other's wedding. And so you know, when you have all these shared experiences both professionally and personally, uh, it's very powerful. Um, and, but then, you know, when you take a step back and a look at the arc of it as well and realize how much growth that's happened completely organically uh, with the company and how we're just now really starting to see those relationships uh, with uh, buyers, global buyers culminate into like some pretty exciting projects. And that typically happens with people's careers, right? Is that as you get to a certain sort of age, you have that experience level. Um, uh, and also, I think we've been able to attract a lot of great talent too. So we have an incredible team now at Marble that we've refined over the years on the creative development, on the production, on the business, on the sales side. And so all pistons are firing and uh, we're really excited to see what the next couple of years, um, you know, come as thing, more things come into fruition. This is a question I've always wondered. Um, down the years, have you received many potential acquisition offers? Because Marble Media has always seemed like a very attractive, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, one of the one of the most impressive production companies in Canada. Have you received? You don't have to name names, of course, but have you received much interest down the years? <laughs> you know, there's been lots of knocks at the door. I think. I mean, we're uh, as Matt said, we're we're really blessed in the way that you know the foundation of this company is a partnership with Matt and I, and uh, we own this company 100%, right? And we've done this completely through organic growth. Uh, and so I think for us, the you know, it's always been a 
it's flattering uh, when people knock on the door, um, you know, but but we, you know, for us, we always have to think really critically about it because, you know, there's this wonderful dynamic uh, and friendship, uh, deep rooted friendship and respect and partnership that, that Matt and I have. And so the thought of somebody else coming in, you know, we would just want to think really critically about who that uh, <laughs> who that person is and who that company would be. Uh, so, yeah, yes, for sure. I mean, there's obviously, you know, we all read about tons of M&A activities. So there's there are lots of knocks at the door. Um, but but uh, we we continue to enjoy being independent and growing growing the business. I think like us, like any business owners, you know, we're we're looking to maximize the value of what we've grown. So we're always open to a conversation if it's the right strategic one and one that um, leverages that. But we're also, you know, to all those points that Mark just uh, mentioned, or uh, you know, that the culture fit is gonna is has to be right up there. So you know, if there's any going to be any move, it it has to check a lot of boxes. Um, have you ever explored or would you explore uh, Marble Media acquiring other companies? Um, you know, there might be a company that has a really attractive piece of IP or is building out some kind of IP universe that you really like or or something or something else. But is, is that something that could be in the future or that you've explored in the past? It's definitely something that we have considered. I mean, I think definitely the the desire to grow and continue to scale the business is a is a key component for Matt and I as we look at, at how it, it, it um, grows and expands. You know, in some cases, as we found oftentimes with IP um, that we can do that in partnership. And we've, we've had, if you look at the history of the company, a lot of partnerships over the years on particular projects. And we have more that we're going to be announcing in the coming months of partnering with other companies. And again, it's a shared risk, shared reward model. Um, but really using that as, as ways to go after some bigger IP, bigger talent, take bigger swings by de-risking it uh, for us as companies. So that's obviously something that, that we've done and had great success with and will continue to do as it relates to to um, you know being able to access larger uh, IP and bigger talent uh, to work with. Um, I think we're always on the lookout in terms of seeing what others uh, are doing internationally and who may be an interesting fit uh, as we grow our business. So we are we are looking at that absolutely. I think for us, it's you know it's always the debate that that anyone has in an acquisition strategy of uh, is it better to build it ourselves and actually grow up those those departments with key talent, which is obviously as you've seen what we've decided to do up until now or do that through acquisition. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's about, we have an incredible network internationally of looking at who some of those other partners could be, and they could be acquisition targets for the future. Um, so we are looking at all all opportunities, um, acknowledging that, uh, you know, we'll, we continue to grow as a business and continue to, to, to be in, in the top 10 highest production volume uh, independent production companies in Canada, uh, you know, there's still a desire to grow. I mean, we always use the the analogy when, you know, Fox and Disney aren't big enough and they have to come together. <laughs> you know, there is there is is a need for scale uh, in, in this business, which we acknowledge and appreciate. Um, not suggesting we are Fox or Disney, uh, but, you know, we, we, we use that analogy to really look and see, you know, scale is important. So we will continue to grow our, and use each of the different tools available to us to, to build and grow our business. After four seasons of running ABC Police Procedural The Rookie, showrunner Alexi Hawley is enjoying the rarefied air of returning for a fifth run this fall. But if making 22 episodes of a network drama in a single year wasn't challenging enough, he's now also overseeing its new spin-off, The Rookie Feds. Included as a backdoor pilot that introduced a new FBI character, star Niecy Nash's Simone Clark, the new show launches in the US this week. 
Hawley spoke to Michael Picard about how the E1 back series was born, how he's applied lessons learned from the rookie to it, and his hopes of taking the title international. Quickly on the rookie, I mean, how does it feel for you going into a season five now? I mean, that must be a, a pretty sweet spot, is it, for a, a network series that, you know, you, you kind of know what you're doing by now, hopefully, and, and it's all pretty well oiled. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Look, I mean, it's, it's rarefied air to end up in a season five on a, on a show these days. And so, yeah, I mean, it feels special. And, you know, it's just such a great cast to write for and, and such a great universe to write in that, I mean, so far, it's been a pleasure to, to just keep telling these stories. What's the secret, do you think, to, to especially on a police procedural when, you know, there have been police procedurals in the past and there will be again? I mean, how do you keep the show fresh, you know, going into season five? Well, I mean, it's really just about, it all boils down to character, which seems very rudimentary. But, you know, just inventing a show in which there these are characters with depth that we care about. And, you know, I worked really hard in the pilot to sort of introduce, I mean, eight different storylines, which, you know, to just give us that storytelling ability and look i mean the setup for nathan's character as the oldest rookie in the lepd is still paying off i mean you know going into season five not in the first episode but by episode three you know he's now becoming the oldest rookie training officer so every new job he has within the department is he's a rookie at which is a really fun idea that we keep leaning into so in success in a season eight he's the oldest rookie detective we'll, we'll get there yeah <laughs> no that's great that's straightforward planning for the title you know it could have all gone horribly wrong after season one but uh yes. <laughs> no that's great and and so at what point in the cycle of the rookie did you first think you know let's make work even harder for ourselves and then think of a spin-off mm -hmm. uh, series to do alongside the rookie what when did those discussions start it's been in the back of my head a little bit from the beginning i mean obviously the beginning of the show is a lot of work and uh, it can be overwhelming but but this idea of of reinvention of sort of that universe Universal experience of wanting a second chapter in your life or, you know, it used to be called the midlife crisis, but, you know, in the last generation or so, you know, people aren't waiting for midlife to, make, to decide they're not happy or they want to change things. I mean, we've seen that a lot during the pandemic years of people just going like, life is too short. I don't want to do this anymore. I, you know, I don't want to spend my days in an office. I don't, I thought this is what I wanted to do, but I don't. And they're no longer waiting until they're, you know, 30 or 40 years old. They're doing it now. So it's even more sort of universal this idea of unhappiness and second chances. And so that as a character template for a show did lend itself to expanding our universe. And so, so then it just came about like, well, what, what do we want this spinoff to be? Do we want it to be another police show? If so, do we want it to be like, like 911 has, is LA, but then their spinoff was in Texas. So do we want to do that or a different branch? And then ultimately it just felt like, you know, the show is a bit of a love letter to Los Angeles. So let's stay here and sort of expand our universe into the FBI. So that's, that's sort of the path that it took to get here. And so um, a sort of midway through season four, you introduced uh, the two episodes sort of backdoor pilot as, as they're called with a new character and, and the FBI coming in to uh, sort of deal with a terrorist uh, incident I mean just tell us a bit about the story of, of how you wanted to do that for you know for people who maybe aren't familiar with you know backdoor pilots and and think well how that sounds crazy you know how do you how do you set up a new show in an existing show <laughs> yeah I mean I don't know if it's a, a purely American thing but um, yeah you you either do a from scratch pilot which is what most shows are or if you're like 
after being something off, you try and introduce a character or a few characters during the course of your season, which then, you know, if the audience responds to, if the network responds to, then, you know, then you sort of can separate them into their own show. And so that was the plan. And so once we we started talking about that, it became about, well, I mean, we want to be in the world of the FBI. So what does that look like? And then what is this character that's coming in as sort of the oldest, you know, rookie, so to speak, FBI agent, but yet at the same time, trying to be smart about, well, you know, you always want the first day on the job to be the beginning of the series. So we didn't want to do that during the, the backdoor pilot. So it, we ultimately landed on, well, she's still at the FBI Academy, she's still at Quantico when this all happens in season four. And that way in success, she can become, it can be her first day on the job, episode one, season one, which ended up being exactly what happened. But yeah, I mean, you need a larger than life character to come into a show full of characters that the audience loves and write, you know, an episode or two around them um, that still stays within the voice of the rookie. So, and then obviously finding uh, Nisi come in and, and play that part was sort of the last piece in the puzzle because you still, you need that, you know, larger than life personality. You need that incredible actor. And, you know, I got super lucky attaching Nathan Fillion to the rookie at the beginning. And so we felt like we needed another TV star to branch out and Nisi was luckily available and interested. Yeah, I mean, tell us about um, Nisi as, as Simone, her character, because she she certainly makes an entrance. She has a great um, driving sequence in in the the pilot, yeah. which we see in in the rookie. I mean, just tell us a bit about her and and was it a natural step that it would be the FBI, or did you kind of look at other ways to, to spin off the show into other arenas? Um, I'll start with the last question first. I mean, I think the FBI was was natural. I like the idea of staying in LA, and I like the idea of expanding our, our universe in a way that we could cross over a lot. You know, if we're in a different city, then it gets harder. You know, the fun of the FBI though is that they're a natural operation so they have a jet they can go anywhere so we can sort of expand we can make the show feel bigger just because they can go to anywhere in the country and actually ultimately in the world because the FBI does operate overseas sometimes in sort of international investigations um so that seemed like a no-brainer on that and then in terms of Nisi and her character I mean you know again the if the idea is reinvention what is that story and so we sort of landed on this idea of a dream deferred of a, of a, a woman who's who's childhood was sort of interrupted and um, when her father was falsely accused of a crime and actually imprisoned for several years um, before he was found innocent and exonerated and so that had a, a big impact on her but that ultimately it was the the feds who um, who who realized that there was a mistake made and they drove the investigation that freed him so that gave her a, a desire to join the FBI only to have gotten pregnant unexpectedly and had twins and, and decided that she had to defer her dream of being an FBI agent to go get a job and raise these kids as a single mom. And so, you know, TV is very, uh, network TV you know, is very fascinating, the idea of a superpower, uh, meaning like, what is your what is your hero really good at? And so, you know, we love the idea that how do we make her sort of a good profiler of people without having done that job? And it really, we landed on her being a guidance counselor at a high school in Washington, D.C. for 20 years, because in that job, you see thousands of kids who are at that, you know, I mean, when we're teenagers, it's sort of, you know, that that bridge between childhood and adulthood and where you're becoming who you are. And so, and, you know, in any high school, you'll see everybody from, you know, people destined for greatness to people destined for prison and and, and everything in between. And so we just thought that was a really fun way to sort of give her a lot of experience that she can lean on to profile people without having done the job. So, yeah, 
no, it's, it's, a, it's a compelling kind of backstory that she's got for, for you know, delaying her dreams. And, and she's a, you know, really empathetic character. I, I found myself, you know, really rooting for her, especially when uh, her superiors sort of get in her face a little bit in the, in the pilot. It's, uh, you definitely want right. to see her succeed <laughs> from the off. What was it about Nisi? Did you speak to her about the character before you kind of cast her? Or how did you work with her initially uh, to get her on board? We did. I mean, you know, the first thing that happens is people put together lists of who's available because you know a lot of people are working and you know especially in this day and age where there's just so many shows there but she was the one that immediately jumped out as it, it would be a huge get for us to get Nisi. i mean you know she's both a phenomenal comedic actress but her dramatic work is also really powerful as well and so the rookie sort of universe tonally lives in everything from comedy to tragedy to action and horror and like you know i love that we do everything but not every actor not every writer every whatever director does all of them and so to find someone like nathan who can do it all was the dream and then for nisi to be available and interested was great and yeah we had a couple of meetings with her and sort of pitched her the character and started dialing it in with her and then ultimately the stars aligned and we got to go do it and so i mean what was the timeline then from having nisi come in and, and do a couple of episodes of the rookie and then i presume take a break while you guys are, are kind of building the writer's room and, and getting some scripts together what's that process like for you behind the scenes it's not as long as you would think i mean it'd be so much better if it was longer but i mean ultimately i think when we started talking about the spin-off probably at the beginning of the year that might be that timeline might be wonky but but ultimately it was fairly quick for me pitching the idea of a spin-off to the network and then being excited about it to us coming up with the broad strokes of the character to finding out that nisi was available and and getting her on board and then you know writing those two episodes to shoot and shooting them with her i mean that probably took place over the course of a month or two and then you know once those came out it's a bit of a wait to see if they're gonna green light a uh, season one, you know, and all indications were really positive and we got to start putting together a writer's room before we got officially picked up and we started booking stages and everything. But, you know, we started shooting in mid-June maybe, which is early. Usually you're, you're in July, but because, you know, they had air dates in mind and because they had a certain number of episodes they wanted us to put on back to back to back. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning of the idea to us shooting the first episode of season one was maybe five months. I mean, it was not long. I guess in terms of the team, have you brought a lot of people from the rookie over to Feds or is it an entirely new team? How have you managed the, the talent behind the screen? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it is a new team, um, although we do cross over characters from rookie and then also back from Feds, um, just because now that's part of the joy, just everything being in L.A. But but yeah, I mean, it, it ultimately becomes, a, a, you know, who who it makes up this team. I mean, part of the joy when I created the rookie back in the day is by having Nathan Fillion who is a TV star, I could actually create all these characters as part of an ensemble around him that didn't need to check the boxes of, uh, I mean, network pilots are always a little bit of a math equation of, you know, you want enough stardom, so to speak, to make people pay attention. And a lot of times one person doesn't do it. So they were like, this person is this much of a star and that person is that much of a star without really playing with chemistry. Like, you know, the reason that shows, the shows that we love succeed is because the chemistry between the actors is great. So by being able to basically go cast the show around Nathan, I got to go find the best chemistry. And, and we were lucky enough to have been able to do the same thing because we had Nisi. We could go create these characters that are super fun and cast them around her. And so 
So yeah, so then it became a question of like which characters are better to sort of show her off, which characters are, are do we need to fill out this team? And so, you know, Felix Solis um came over, you know, he was in 419 and 420, the the backdoor episodes. And so we, you know, he he's the guy who put together the special unit. And then yeah, it was just about, you know, she needed a training agent. And James Lejour is just such a phenomenal actor who again, I mean, we just hired everybody who could do both drama and comedy to play her. Her more straight-edged training agent because she's so wild card. And then, you know, what is this other team going to be? We like the idea of a of a, a profiler, so to speak, on the team, which is the character that Britt Robertson is playing, but one with a flawed sort of personal history, which kind of made her fall from grace. And then came up with this really fun idea of the other rookie being, given that we're in LA, a former actor, the, a guy who was the star of a show called Vampire Cop, which ultimately was unfulfilling to him and so he gave up being an actor to become an FBI agent but how do you get taken seriously when you used to be vampire cop which allowed us to have fun obviously and play that tone but also you know give him a serious backstory as well about a kid who basically was forced to live his, his father's dream by becoming an actor and yeah just always trying to add nuance and depth there but to really create this ensemble around her that they're all very unique and and sort of help put this team together fantastic I hope we're going to see some excerpts of vampire cop or is that your next spin-off? That you know, we I gotta hedge my bets a little bit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, as a showrunner, as an EP, I mean, what's the way you like to run a writer's room? And is, is that the same for the rookie as it will be on the feds? What's that process like of just you know breaking down story and and sort of getting the scripts together? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a you know, being a showrunner is a is a is a complicated gig. You're sort of in charge of both the entire creative vision of the show and the production side, you know, budgets and 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 crew and and schedules and and then also post which is all the editing and the mixing and the all that so there's just a lot going on so i mean ultimately i knew going into feds that i you know i couldn't just do that by myself so you know terrence paul winter who i've known since he and i were both on staff on castle way back in the day and then when i went back to the show he and i co-ran the final season of castle and and he's been on rook he had been on the rookie since almost the beginning so anyway terrence and i have a great relationship and and he's super talented Talented. And so that was my first question when, you know, I got the network interested in the spinoff is whether he wanted to do it with me. And luckily he did. And so, you know, the writer's room of it all is, is, you know, you've, you set up these characters who are very iconic, but you still need to sort of teach your own staff how the show works. And you're also finding out how the show works yourself. I mean, the difference between The Rookie, which is a show about police officers who are out patrolling the streets, which means that at any time they get out of their car, like anything can happen is just fundamentally a little bit different structurally than an FBI show where a crime start is committed in Act 1 and that's what you're solving, you know, um, by the end of the episode. And so, yeah, a little bit of like, what, how are they similar? How are they different? How do we make Feds its own unique thing? But, you know, I mean, bottom line, you have to find people who are good at what they do and trust them to do that because you'll never be able to do it all yourself. Are, are there lessons that you've taken from writing The Rookie and, and making the show for so many years that you're now bringing into The Rookie Feds, which is obviously a different show and a new show but 
will have similar maybe structure or, or roots in in the the rookie concept. Yeah, I mean, I think what's always been important to me on rookie is is to try and just be unexpected wherever you can because you know, I mean, how many television shows are there? How many streaming services? I mean, there's we're just all you know experts in in storytelling now because we just watch so much of it, and so it's really hard to do something the audience doesn't see coming. And so you know, part of the joy of the patrol show is because anything can happen at any moment you know in the rookie sometimes we have some twist in in at the end of act two which the audience didn't know what the episode was going to be about that until like 25 minutes into the show so that's harder to do in feds because again it's more of a linear structure but still taking that lesson of okay well if we do have a crime to solve every episode how do we keep trying to make it unaffected how do we keep turning the story and twisting it and all that kind of stuff in an inorganic way so so that's probably one of the big ones and then just the tonal walking that line between funny and, and serious and really just trying to create a show that audiences look forward to watching even though we have high stakes and even though we do serious and even though tragedy happens like at the end of the day i think you know that audiences do look forward to watching us and we're a bit of an escape which you know given the world today is uh what you want mm-hmm. no, absolutely what, what are the challenges in, in making a show like the rookie feds or, or even the rookie we saw car chases and, and explosions in, in the backdoor pilot for rookie feds i mean what is that something you're going to have in every episode or is, is that the challenge that maybe you need to know your limitations perhaps in budget or scheduling or, or whatever else it might be yeah that's definitely the challenge i mean obviously you need to make a splash when you're auditioning uh, so to speak for for a gig and at the beginning of a season you need to make a splash again but the realities of, of tv budgets are you can't make an action movie every week so which is where ultimately it becomes about character because you know the noise easiest, biggest action movie that you watch, and we all watch plenty of them, where you don't actually care about the characters, they just become noise, right? You know, so even small action can have high stakes if you're invested in the characters and you're rooting for them. And so that's ultimately the takeaway is, you know, we have to obviously, you know, do big episodes, but we can't do them every week. So how do we still make the audience invest in us and, and along for the ride so that when you do big, they're, they're right there with you. And I mean, that audience, I mean, that includes people I think in 180 countries around the world for the rookie I mean is that something you can think about can you incorporate that in any way at all or is that just a lovely bonus for you to have that more people are watching it than you know just in the states well look I mean it is lovely I mean it's awesome and and you know I mean it's part of the joy of you know working with Iwan and the ability to sort of you know sell internationally and really sort of fund those markets in a way that doesn't necessarily happen with with big studios which have a tendency to just sell all their stuff at once you know whereas with with rookie and with feds it's like this was platform by itself and so you can get people really invested in, in that show and look i mean with feds you know as i said earlier the fbi is and it does work internationally and so that is the hope down the road is to have us go different places i mean there's a just as an example there's a movie that came out i don't know maybe it was 10 years ago called the kingdom which peter berg directed about an fbi team that goes to saudi arabia because there was a bombing on, a, on an american base there and and that is the kind of stuff that a, the fbi does they go overseas to help investigate crimes that involve Americans and stuff like that. So that is an exciting idea that we can go, you know, I mean, whether we can afford to, to physically go and shoot in uh, in London or Africa or Europe or whatever, I don't know. But the idea that we, our storytelling can be international is, is really fun. And I mean, you've mentioned, you know, just the amount of TV being made at the moment. I mean, what's it like for you? 
you know, making a couple of broadcast shows now, which were once the top of the tree and are now, you know, obviously fighting for viewers' attention, you know, across 22 episodes a, a year. That's still an enormous volume to make with perhaps dwindling viewers. So how do you kind of keep going and, and what's the atmosphere like for you making the show? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously the nightly numbers are not what they used to be at all. But with, you know, delayed viewing with, you know, I mean, Rookie ends up on Hulu because um, that's part of the Disney family. But, you know, those numbers are not, I mean, those numbers are still strong. I mean, you look at the numbers that get announced for a show like House of Dragons or something like that. And, and you know, they're talking about 10 million viewers or something like that. Like we end up there definitely, you know, within 21 days of delayed viewership on The Rookie. And so it's, it's not nothing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of shows out there that, you know, that are critically acclaimed shows that have much smaller audiences. So, you know, it really just depends. People find you and, you know, the other joy is that, you know, if somebody has to come across the rookie now they have 80 plus episodes to go back and enjoy so so no i mean look i i like the pace of network television i like the fact that we make so many of them i think that it's dynamic and it can be frustrating for audiences that if you get eight eight episodes of a season one and then it's you don't get season two for two years and then it's another eight so i don't know i'm sticking with network as part of my what i do great and and just you know what what you've made eight episodes already you know what can we expect from rookie feds and and you know where where's uh uh, Simone's adventure is gonna gonna take her. Look, the show is super fun. Like the rookie, it's a show you look forward to watching. I think we did a great job, if I can say that, casting it. And the actors themselves love each other, like on set, which you can always feel. And so, yeah, it's a really good group, and the show's dynamic. And you know, Nisi is such a larger than life actress, and and the character she plays, you know, I mean, she's pushy where she needs to be pushy. She has depth where she needs to have depth, and and you're just rooting for her. Because like she's she's trying to do something that's hard to do, especially as your second chapter in life. And so I don't know. I think there's a humanity to the show, which is both fun but also really relatable. That's all for this episode. But you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 